Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. So we have created a new FuturePod series called The Re-Interviews. Today, we are re-interviewing Joseph Voros. We originally interviewed Joseph in podcast 18, Big History and Civilizational Foresight. In that podcast, Joe explains how he used big history as a framing perspective on the possible futures of humanity. It's a wide-ranging conversation full of big ideas and hopes. Welcome back to FuturePod, Joe. Thank you. Great to be back. Good to have you back. So what new things have you learned since we last spoke and what are you working on now? So I've just been thinking back you know, about the, the, the two years or so since then. And, of course, the world has changed. I mean, one of the very first foresight processes I ever ran was suddenly the world changes and it happened to be on the 11th of September 2001. <laughs> so back in the day, you know, and that, that's the one that's the folklore story, of course, which is we had we had one of the wild cards was terrorist attack in a major US city or cities, which we took out because we said, no, that's, that's so implausible. If anyone pulled that, that would just annoy them. <laughs> so it's just been a reconnection to the idea of the, the, the classic lesson from 20 years ago is that every wild card needs to stay in the deck. So, of course, you know, COVID-19 is just another reiteration of that, that idea. And so, but that's led me to think, how do you spot this sort of stuff? And so, you know, the Masters has finished, of course, and so I've been thinking about the, the next direction, of course, and I've been revisiting the work that I did 20 years ago because that's that idea of wild cards has plugged me back into that early work, which was as an intelligence analyst or, you know, futures intelligence analyst, as I would like to call it. Mm. And so I've just been revisiting the old scanning hits from, from literally two decades ago just to see how they panned out. Students used to ask about it a lot, you know, well, you used to do environmental scanning or you know, futures analysis or whatever. How well did it go? And, you know, the, the standard response is, well, it's not about prediction. It's not about getting it right. It's about preparing to not be wrong. I've now had a bit of time to sort of go back to that and, and relook at it. So, you know, the scanning retrospective series is running on my blog and it's interesting to to note what I was writing about then and, and compared with what happened over the 20 years that became now history. Plugging into that idea of, of futures intelligence, if you will, of doing what intelligence analysts do, which is to try to develop useful information or useful knowledge using incomplete or ambiguous information. It's the same thing that futurists try to do. I'm interested in the confluence of those two activities, very much sort of the Sherlock Holmes idea of how do you take two or three disparate pieces of information and with some some clever analysis, turn that into something that tells you much more than you would imagine from just those two or three bits of analysis. There's an assumption in there, and I share the same assumption, of course, that if we had better information, then leaders could make better decisions, i.e., 
the problem of leadership is that it hasn't got the best information about an uncertain future. And so intelligence, if you like, could build a better mousetrap to get better future intelligence. And what will follow, of course, is better decisions. But is that really the case? Are we simply where we are right now because we didn't have good intelligence or is this something more than just the, the quality of the future intelligence we have? I think it's probably a combination of both. You recall from the old days of the MSF when we taught the viable system model that the decision-making process, and so for, for listeners, this is going to be some archaic language here, the viable system model, the VSM has six main systems and uh, was it six relationships or nine relationships? Uh, you used to do the six plus six plus three stuff. But this was system five, which is essentially the identity or the policy level of the organisation, needs to rely on system four, which is the intelligence function, which has an outside and then perspective, whereas management or control, system three, has an inside and now. So there's a fundamental tension between looking outside and into the future versus you know what's happening here and now. The system five function, sort of the executive function, has to balance that. Hmm. Now, if things are going to crap outside in the world, then there may well be a cognitive bias against letting too much of that information in because it's too scary. Uh, or let's focus on what we can do something about, you know, the old stoic uh, control aspect, you know. I can't control the future. I can control my response. And so that could lead to really a pulling inwards and, you know, let's get better at our core business Let's focus down on, on, you know, building better widgets or doing better services or whatever it is. So inside and now starts to take precedence over any information from outside and then. So three beats four in five's mind, and then you have this drawing down. And as you used to say, you know, when, when five tries to do three's job, intelligence goes out the window like an orange pit. Yeah. For me, the challenge, Joe, is that, as you say, the dilemma of leaders is they need excellent processes and thinking and delivery inside the organisation based on everything they've known. And at the same time, they have to hold the view that the future could be so disrupted that everything that they believe is best could, in fact, be a bad match for future conditions. And effectively, that's a paradox. And in my experience, Senior people don't like paradoxes. They like solutions to problems. Exactly. And so that's why, you know, the old corporate strategy textbook that I used to use all those years ago was specifically focused on paradox because basically the, the capacity that leaders need to bring to the decisions that they make for their organisations, whether they're corporate, whether they're government, whether they're not-for-profit, whatever, is how do you hold the paradox in mind without going mad problems like that held in mind long enough will yield. It's just a question of can you hold them in mind long enough? Now, coming back to the role of the future as the intelligence analyst, it's like you need to provide the best possible intelligence. It's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Yes, you, you crank it up, you try and develop the best possible intelligence using cross-checking as many times as you can, using structured analytic techniques for intelligence analysis to make sure that you're trying to mitigate the cognitive biases and, and what have you. But ultimately, it depends on your information stream and how good that is. But it also depends upon the attention span or the, the time span of responsibility that the, the leadership of the organisation 
is able to bring to bear. They might want mm. to go 10 to 20 years out, like Ilya Jakes used to say, but they might not be able to because the complexity is so huge, the chaos is so proximal that there's a paralysis there. It's an unenviable position, but it's a position nonetheless. And the job of the, the futures analyst or the futures intelligence analyst is to try to provide the best possible support within the limitations of causality to, to that position. And, you know, as Ben Gillard used to yell at us when we used to do competitive intelligence courses, it's like the job of the intelligence analyst is to speak the truth to power. And that's a very fraught position, as you used to say in classes, as I recall. The thing about futures intelligence is that you can approach futures intelligence as a, as a purist and simply say, my job is to come up with the best intelligence and hand it over to the leaders and say, well, it's up to you to deal with the paradox. But is that really good enough to do futures intelligence that way, saying, I'm doing my job, what you do with it's up to you? Does effective futures intelligence need more than just someone who's purely focused on their work on the uncertain future? I think that's a big part of it because it is, it is a craft. Um, as with most of these approaches to cognitive work, it's more art than science. I mean, yes, there are, there are frameworks you can use, key assumption checks and, and you know, diagnostic reasoning and using diversity in your, your deliberation processes. But ultimately, there's, there's a purist element to it, but it's got to be pragmatic as well. It's got to be, as you know from, from how we used to practice foresight, it was you, you need the rigour of intellectual discipline, but it's got to be you know, done focused towards pragmatic utility in the real world. The real world is messy. And so there, there is room for attempting to improve the craft, but the craft has to be in service of something in the same way that in theoretical physics, you can focus on the theory and just get lost in it. But ultimately, you've got to confront that with reality. And, and the proof of the theory is in what reality reckons the answer is. And I think the same thing is true in intelligence analysis. You can have esoteric processes, you can develop beautiful tables and charts, but ultimately this has to confront reality and it, it needs to be in service of decision-making, whether strategic or policy formulation, you know, tactical decisions, whatever it is. It needs to be done in service of action in the world. Mm. And so the, the role of the, the analyst is to do the best that they can with what they can get, start where you are, use what you've got, do what you can, as I think Arthur Ashe used to say. Uh, but with that, it always has to be done with the mindset that people are going to need this to make a decision. What can I do to make it as easy as possible for them to make the decisions that they need to make? And I think that's really the role of the futures intelligence analyst. Mm, thanks. We've been having this conversation both as analysts, but also as educators. But we're now in 2021. It's now quite a different world from when you worked originally as an analyst at the university and I worked as an analyst in the public service. It's a different world. There are different tools. There are different abilities to do it. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about how we can do futures intelligence now? I would argue we've got more tools and more information the job necessarily isn't isn't easier, but it's actually there's actually more possible. 
Well, yes, the world has changed, and what's what's changed is that you know way back then we didn't have access to as much information. Although you know the glut was starting, the internet was starting to to really go gangbusters. I remember when I worked at Netscape in the late nineties. Uh, it was in Silicon Valley that I first saw, you know, a web URL on the side of a bus. <laughs> I thought, hmm, <laughs> you know, and now, of course, it's just, what do you mean there's no URL on the side of the bus? You know what I mean? It's like the just thinking back to those days and seeing the, uh, they weren't even weak signals by that stage, but they were, they were signals of what was coming. You know, nowadays we've got far more access to far more information Potentially, although there are segments of the web that are, you know, closed in the sense that they're behind paywalls, the thing that's changed is that there is just so much information. There is just information is not the problem. Making sense of the information is the problem. And so mm. analytical frameworks to, to sort of sort out the signal from the noise, which not surprising was the name of Nate Silver's book. And, and so the trick is really what do you focus on and ignore so that you're not swamped by noise because there's an awful lot of noise. Cal Newport, the well-known critic of the social or the implications of technology in society, basically is what he talks about. He's, he famously has never had a social media account, says you really don't need it. And he's right in the sense that social media is largely a source of noise. So while SOCMINT, as they call it, social media intelligence is useful to some degree, it's very easy to drown in that. Part of the trick is to find those sources that are actually indicative. And this is not something that you can just look up in a, in a book. This is something that is specific to particular organisations. So this is a, a proper, properly formulated or properly formed strategic intelligence scanning and monitoring system requires bespoke creation, really. It's, it's got to be tied to the organisation, it's going to be tied to the strategic intent of the organisation. That means looking for precursor signals, weak signals, as we say, uh, for how this might turn out. And But that's not enough. You've also got to track it. Far too much of scanning is essentially ad hoc or episodic. You know, it's typically crisis-initiated, OMG, WTF, what's going on? We need to do this. And so there's a flurry of activity. You, you know, you create a few temporary roles for six to 12 months, quick do this stuff. The intelligence is, is delivered and that's it. The roles are either discarded or they're, you know, they're, they're fixed term and that's over. Now, I like to think in terms of radar and especially, you know, one of the the terms I've been starting to use the last couple of years in, in some work I've been doing for government agencies is um, over the horizon scanning. Because we, we talk about horizon scanning in Foresight, but I like to think in terms of over the horizon scanning, which is, you know, how do you, how do, you do what the Polynesian navigators did, which is to read the signs so well that you don't even need to see line of sight that there's land over there. You just know there is land over there because you've read the signs. So that to me is is kind of the next stage in the craft of intelligence is over the horizon scanning. Uh, and of course, Australia has a defence system that, that uses over the horizon radar. And so in the same way that you don't just turn it on every second Tuesday and have a quick look, it needs to be continuous. Hmm. 
So I think organisations that intend to survive in the future and into the future need to have continuous over-the-horizon or at least horizon scanning capabilities that are scanning for what changes are going on, monitoring how those are changing over time, forecasting, if you will, where those changes may be going and assessing those changes for the implications for the organisation. And this needs to be done continuously, not episodic. Every year we might have a half a day workshop and have some coffee and then talk about it. No, this needs to be done continuously depending upon how far out the organisation needs to look. That's why this is something that you, you just can't pull off the shelf. It's, it's got to be built for the organisation. Yeah. Another one I'm interested to hear your opinion on, this has always been part of the craft, but nowadays we have wonderful access to a flood of conspiracy theories running around. And conspiracy theories, once upon a time, weren't talked about. Now they're on the daily news and the front page of the newspaper and we hear them talked about in politicians' speeches. Mm. How do conspiracy theories, are they part of what you use to get a sense of what could occur? I think yes, because not, not, not in the literal sense, but you know, emerging issues analysis, which is the technique that invented by Graham Molitor, uh, the late Graham Molitor, unfortunately, he died a few years ago. There's a special issue of World Future Review devoted to his work. But he cooked up this, this approach called emerging issues analysis he worked for decades, you know, tracking this. And so it's possible to recognise, and he had a 22-step model, it's possible to recognise the maturation of an idea before it ends up becoming public policy. He was specifically interested in public policy. And although I can't remember the exact quote now, but I'm sure I read somewhere that he said, there's really no excuse for anyone to be taken by surprise in terms of public policy. Mm because this typically takes anywhere from six to 35 years to mature and turn into legislation. So if you say, oh, no one could have seen that coming, it just means that you didn't have your eyes open. If you know where to look and what to look for, he claimed, you could see this stuff coming. So, of course, this immediately says, well, where do you look? Now, one of the things down, and of course, it's an S-curve of emergence. It starts off very low, very little signal, great deal of noise. Signal-to-noise ratio is close to zero. But this then follows the S-curve as it matures into a trend and then becomes an issue and then, you know, fades from public consciousness as it's sort of legislated, routinized, and then becomes part of historical analysis. I do a case study of the Strava bit outing the forward bases in Afghanistan as a case study in emerging issues analysis for a certain government agency that I occasionally do some work for. And the idea of, of a fitness bit which was in 2018 that the Pentagon announced, don't wear them, they're an OPSEC hazard. If you trace that back, you find that in 1968, so 50 years earlier, they appeared in science fiction. Mm. A heart rate monitor in the film Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, sometimes called Doppelganger. So science fiction had picked this idea of something to to monitor your heart rate. Of course, it, it didn't do much for a long time, but it started to pick up around about the mid-aughties or noughties, and then started to, to go through the standard, and as I, I showed this in the case study, starts to go through the standard follow-on phases of the idea emergence curve. Now, part of this way down the curve, of course, is fringe media, underground press, 
you know, some would say the lunatic fringe. Maybe not the lunatic fringe, but the, the fringe nonetheless. I mean, and there may well be lunatic fringe as well. You don't go there because you believe what they're saying. You go there because you want to see what they're saying, and that then becomes part of your tracking system. You'll recall the time that we did a policy workshop for state government, and one of the things the group came up with, of course, was easement rights for access to solar radiation. Mm. So the idea was that you weren't allowed to build tall buildings that would cut off sun during the day because that's an infringement on someone's easement rights to the sun. Of course, I'd seen that done as street theatre in 1992, <laughs> mm. as, as you know, that bastion of, of policy analysis, street theatre. But already then you had the fringe, you know, the artists, the mystics, the, the people who are not mainstream, who are on the edges of society, who think ahead. And you know, I distinctly recall they their critique was that there are people sitting there in, in you know, sun lounges with narrow shafts of light that were slowly moving, and they would keep moving because that was the crack of sunlight coming between the tall buildings that were sort of overshadowing literally their property. So 15 years earlier, artists, street theatre people, had spotted that as a potential future issue. And so a monitoring system that says, okay, here's an idea, easement rights for solar radiation, then tracked through the emerging issues analysis curve would have revealed to these policy analysts, rather than this being an idea that, oh, you know, wow, what a great new idea, this is old. The idea here is that there are people who can see alternative futures and not all of these will mature, of course. Sometimes they die off. But those that, that make it to successive stages in that should should ping an alarm that says, okay, this idea is now starting to touch sources of information that indicate that it's moved to the next phase in its emergence. And so that at least means that it needs it, it bears some revisiting as a potential issue. What's the time frame for emergence? What's the time frame for maturation? And then it goes back into the monitoring stage. That's how I think you use the types of people that talk about conspiracy are useful in, in that regard because they often put together very, very weak signals and create castles out of, here's a piece of broken tile that's five square centimetres and they build out of that, you know, a Roman villa <laughs> as, as part of their sort of mental construction of what this means. It almost always is wrong, but not necessarily always, because what's that line? Even a blind squirrel finds an acorn occasionally. That's right, yes. I think there's an opportunity there too, and this is kind of where we talk about the opportunities to develop the leadership capacity of organisations, and particularly I think we'd both say that Shell would do this as an exemplar organisation is where executive groups talk through the possible actions they would take. In other words, make a small investment on, on you know, hypothesizing and gaming some of these ideas to turn these into kind of the vernacular and strategic language of leadership without necessarily saying this will happen about what would we do if this did happen. Yes, exactly. This is Keith van der Hayden's idea of strategic conversation. I mean, he used scenarios as the as the technique for that, of course, because they needed something that was very, very rigorous, given that they were typically talking about billions of dollars of, of investment. 
So yes, the, the the purpose of this stuff really is to create a language, a shorthand language, typically, which is how the scenarios are used for decision makers. Yes, to exactly to talk through the implications. If this happens, uh, what would we do? And you know, everyone knows the, the famous story that Pierre Vark wrote about in Harvard Business Review back in the eighties. You know, he he stared down the the executives and told them, even if they don't believe the idea of an oil shock, they need to think it through just for the sake of thinking it through so that when that unthinkable happened, they were actually well prepared and they went from the seventh of the seven sisters, so-called, to I think the first or second in terms of revenue because they were not flat-footed. They were, I don't know, to, to misuse the term now, agile. They weren't sitting back on their on their heels watching, they were, as it were, crouched, ready to move in case the need was there, and, and they did move. Doesn't Nicholas Taylor refer to it as a, as a small bet on a future? In other words, rather than bet the farm, yeah. it's actually strategic to place small bets with high leverage. Yes. And so the, the portfolio approach to doing business is, is this is where it comes into its own, where you have a, a large portfolio of, of small bets because if even if only one or two of these come off that that really you know hit the jackpot, then you've paid for all of the other ones. This is um, IPO a go-go in Silicon Valley, of course. The venture capitalists come in, they they buy a million shares at a penny each for ten thousand dollars. The company goes public offering. The share price goes to a dollar and one cent. Sell instant million dollars. So, mm. but they know that. Most of those bets aren't going to pay off. I mean, they're aware of that. They, they, they know that. They play the odds. And so, as you know from stuff that we taught, that, that we don't tend to think that well in terms of probabilities. It's a constant battle to, to remind ourselves of Bayes' theorem or just straight probability. The fact that people still argue about the Monty Hall problem is, is testament to that. I mean, it is hard in public policy to be wrong, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's one thing to talk about to talk about IPO and and venture capital, but when you're in a public policy role, you know, being wrong is you, you can't say, "Gee, you know, we were right, you know, this particular time, but then we were wrong in these." I mean, can you still bring that mindset to to kind of public policy? I think what what needs to happen in public policy, because of course, you know, you're you're not just you're not just a say a corporate-style organisation is going to lose money. Typically, public policy is government, and so their purview is the whole of society. So of necessity, those decisions need to be much more conservative. In this case, you do need much better data. You will typically wait longer to make sure that the crazy ideas that are way down the S-curve are starting to mature and look like they're going to mature along the way. But, of course, the longer you leave it, the harder the problem is to fix and that's the paradox of emerging issues, is that the more data you have, the more it's going to cost you to fix it. The less data you have, the more uncertain it is, but the much less, the much less cost it will be mm. to, to divert that. You know, if we'd started mitigating climate change back in the 60s when the Keeling curve was you know, a thing, look at that, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have now. But then... The flip side of that, of course, this is a, a fault of human reasoning. One of the, the many biases that we, we had built into us is that it's awfully hard to argue the counterfactual. 
you know, it was it Taleb who says, you reward the firefighter, you don't reward the backburner. Mm. You know, or, but he does talk about the September the 10th policy analyst, doesn't he? Yes. About on, on September the 10th, a new policy is instituted that says all cockpit doors are locked. Oh, it's so expensive. And so, of course, September the 11th never happens. And then, you know, but, and that's, that's really the paradox of futures analysis is that sometimes the thing that proves the conjecture is correct is the thing you're trying to avoid. This is the old story about crossing the road. Don't cross the road with your fingers in your ears and your, your eyes covered because you might get hit by a truck. You make it across. Well, that was, a, that was wrong advice. The thing that proves that it's right takes you out of it and there's no learning there. So, you know, if you're, if you're taken out of the gene pool, then you don't learn that. That's Stuart Brand's famous statement that surprise plus memory equals learning. You know, if, if, if there's no memory of the surprise, you don't learn. Hmm. If you're killed by getting hit by a truck, then, you know, to the moment you're out of the gene pool, you still think it's a good idea. So all you can really do is, is look to past learnings around that because... We shouldn't have to destroy the world through climate change to realise that we could destroy the world through climate change. That is a fundamentally idiotic stance to take. So alien civilizations haven't contacted us because they're watching to see whether we're going to be that idiotic or not. You, you don't start a long conversation with someone who's suicidal. Part of why our job around intelligence is... As you say, there is more information, is the nature of the technologies that we use our, and the natures of the world that these technologies have have allowed emerge. But the technologies themselves have always had risk inherent in them. But what's your view on the risks possible now through technology? Well, of course, surveillance capitalism is the is the one that comes to mind now. I mean, it didn't information capitalism didn't have to go into the toxic form that it's taken. Uh, it just ended up being the easiest and the simplest. What I mentioned before, the, the, the Strava bit issue was actually a result of surveillance capitalism. The US Navy had issued a directive saying, don't wear Fitbits. I mean, wear them if you want, but make sure they don't have, they don't have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth on them because, you know, that, that, that constitutes a risk. What they didn't realise was that anything that's got a GPS in it that's got some sort of memory through time could also log your position mm. and of course what what these things did was they suck the data back because that's the agreement you sign yes you know give me all your data you agree that you're my data slave and so that sucked all the information away without knowledge or consent in many cases and published it as a heat map and so you found that there were these places that that were secret, secure, with heat maps of who's where at what time. And so looking at that, saying, oh, well, you know, obviously that's the mess hall, so that's the place to log, you know, a few dozen mortars at dinner time to, to take out 80% of the personnel. Now, that's not something you think of when you're wearing a fitness bit, but that's the risk that happens where people are not in control of their data, where data can be aggregated to this degree. Now, I think... That's going to need to be, I mean, people need to be watching this very carefully. Futurists need to be watching this very carefully. Is that at, at what point do people revolt against that? At the moment, I'm going through the Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson, and, of course, there's, a, there's the creation of a, essentially a you-own-your-own data system. This is based on what um, Tim Berners-Lee is currently developing. 
but but the idea is that users control their data, they control who can see how much of what, in what context, and so already the seeds of that idea is starting to be worked on by the father of the web. This is way down the, the S-curve, it's sort of rendering the idea to specifics through, through technical discussions, but this is something that bears watching, and so those organisations that have built their financial empire on stealing people's data and saying, well, you signed up for this, essentially one of the most asymmetric power relationships you can imagine, short of the state monopoly on violence, how long before people rebel against that? And people are rebelling mm. against that. You know, the worldwide privacy movements, you know, you, you start to look at things like Firefox browser, which is what I'm using. These are designed for, for privacy. And so there is this idea of how do you take back something that in a small amount is useful, but even water will kill you in, in too large an amount. So more of the same is not necessarily good. You can die from too much water as, as well as from too little. All technologies contain uh, have risks you know, inherent in them. The thing that needs to be done is, and this was the old Office of Technology Assessment, which is just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And how do we determine whether even though something is possible, is it actually preferable? So I think more work needs to be done on technology assessment. There, there needs to be a great deal more work around figuring out public policy responses to things that uh, really uh, have the potential to, to go pear-shaped. You know, you have essentially, as you know, I call the present era the scene, the era of surveillance everything, Sometimes it's necessary, you know, for safety, but I don't know that capitalism really needs to know absolutely all there is to know about everything that I do. That's just creepy. And so those sorts of risks need to be mitigated. How do you balance the risks with the benefits, mitigate the risks, increase the benefits? This is the age-old story. Uh, and that requires some fairly serious futures analysis. Okay, Joe, so in terms of sort of yeah, summing up where you are and where you're heading, what's your last words for the listeners? Uh, well, now that I'm sort of post-academia, um, I'm interested in sort of reconnecting to roots. You know, when I first started doing foresight work over 20 years ago, I was an independent consultant, and that led to some work at the Foresight Institute, which was at Swinburne. That led to the Swinburne job, which led me to be an organisationally-based futurist. I ended up doing academia or for 18 years. So now I'm sort of, I'm heading back, reconnecting with that early work, the stuff that's never stopped being interesting to me, which is, you know, how do you develop useful intelligence out of very, very patchy information? And so returning to the idea of futures intelligence as a, and I use the term in, in, in a dual sense, sort of intelligence in the sense of the product so that's the intelligence analyst's use of the term, as in, you know, here is the, here is the intelligence that we've developed. But also it futures intelligence in the sense that Howard Gardner would use it, the psychologist's view, which is what are the capacities that are needed for that. And this, to me, is a source of continuing fascination, is how do we develop our capacity for futures intelligence, not just thinking intelligently about the future, but developing good intelligence about the future and therefore the directions that we want to steer spaceship Earth 
um, and the sort of the, the global civilization that we're in, uh, what paths do we want? What paths do we not want? And again, I'll bring it back to science fiction. I recently finished The Peripheral After uh, uh, At Long Last, which is a dystopian future, and I'm currently finishing Ministry for the Future, which is covers essentially the same basic time frame. And whereas, you know, Gibson's view is essentially the collapse archetype, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's view is is really the sort of the transformation archetype. Mm. And I think those are the two the two pathways. You know, and there's discipline along the way, of course, and, and, and what have you, but but more of the same can't happen. More of the same is doom. And so that needs to change. The question is how much discipline are we going to put up with uh, or how much transformation are we going to seek to bring about? I think it's worth the question. And this, this still does go back to big history and civilizational futures. But now I'm interested in futures intelligence as the cognitive capacity for organizations, but also for societies and indeed the global civilization. How does it use futures intelligence to treat the future intelligently, develop good intelligence about the future, and increase its own intelligence about thinking about the future? And that should keep me occupied for you know maybe another couple of decades. There's worse things. Thanks, Joe. Well, look, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to reconnect. Thanks very much for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.